It's time for episode seven of Dom Day Tales, the official podcast of Dom Day. This is episode seven, and boy, do we have another good one lined up for you. I'm Justin, and once again, I'm joined by my esteemed co-hosts, the buddies of Budweiser, the menors of Molson, Babe, Cote, and Donnie. And as always, our producer, Dizzy Patterson, is enjoying a couple bush lights and a few laughs while keeping the gang in order. We're pleased to welcome back once again our special guest, Mike Minow. He's now on to his fourth drink and second episode. Gentlemen, how are you doing this evening? Good, Justin. Good. Yeah. How are awesome. you doing? I'm not too bad. I can't complain. Yeah. So I, I know last time we opened up with uh, a, a reading from uh, from the uh, the mailbag, and we have received another uh, note from a mailbag, not as controversial as uh, Cote's brother, um, but we did receive confirmation from Steve McNamney that Dicker did in fact play in Dom Day, and he confirmed that he played Dom Day in Dom Day 9, and he was a third bagger. Um, the question, though, I have, and I did do some research on this, of the 15 times that Dicker won the Rookie of the Year, did he win Rookie of the Year that he was actually playing in Dom Day? Men? I, I, can't, I think so. I can't I see say, it. I would say probably, you know, I can't remember him playing, but he probably won it that year in 89, I would think, or 91 or whatever he played. So Must no, have been a guys- bad crop. Yeah, I was going to say, you guys should know better than that. You're not nice enough to do that. He's won Rookie of the Year 15 times, and he did not win Rookie of the Year that he actually was the rookie. (laughs) Is it 15? Is it 15? He is is one 15 Rookie of the Year title. So I know that was on one of our earlier episodes. We were trying to sort through that out, and McNabney reached out to me and, and gave me some data to do some digging on that. So thanks to Steve McNabney for that. So, guys, we're going to jump right back into it, and uh, there's no need to give this guy a, a, another introduction, but Mike Minow, who is our guest on this this episode, um, somewhere along the rise, not only became a figure known for, for drinking and a little bit of debauchery, but became somebody who was very influential as it relates to the overall uh, Dom Day tournament. He became what is now known as a god. For those who don't know, we're not referring to what you say when Cote swings the bat. Oh, he's a god. But we're talking about the guys who are governors of Dom Day. Our uh, friend Mike Donnelly is one of those, and Mike Minow is also one. So, Minow, the question is, how did you kind of rise to power and become a god? Well, I think it started incrementally. Like, it, it started back in, in, in 85 when the 84, I think, was the last house party. And really nobody wanted to put their hand up uh, for another one for various reasons. So we were kind of looking for a place for a party. And I was living on Dixon Road with Westy and, and Al Tuesday. And we didn't have a party room, but the place next to us had a party room. And, and uh, Stacy Copeland's uncle lived there. And uh, so we had an inn and we talked to the, the uncle and we talked to the uh, uh property manager there and they allowed us to use their party room it was a a small cost so that was sort of how I started like it was a lot of there was a lot of work to put a party on back in the day because it wasn't catered you had to go out and buy food and booze and all the rest of the stuff that you needed for a party and there was like 80 90 people there so that's kind of how I I first got involved and then like the four original gods were Donnie Pete Bobby and Al and then I think when Donnie moved to the states in 87 or 88, like there's a bit of a void that needed to be filled. And uh, it was eight, the 87 Dom Day where we were looking to kind of, you know, 
amp up our game a little bit with respect to the party location. It would always been in somebody's house or kind of a basement of an apartment or something. So, so Pete was typically the guy to go out and, and, uh, and identify a place that we might want to have a party. So, um, so he identified the plantation bowl down on Dundas street this one year. And he asked me to go along with him and just kind of meet the guy and see how, you know, what type of deal we could work out. So we went down there and, and again, by this point in time, most of the guys it's, were married, or a lot of the guys were married, had girlfriends, there was a couple of kids around. So we wanted to, to kind of have a nicer event, right, that everybody could enjoy. So, so we, we go down to the Plantation Bowl, and it was actually pretty nice. It was a restaurant slash bowling alley, right? And I'm kind of thinking to myself, I don't know, this, this could be a problem, when the boys have a few drinks, the bowling alley angle might be a little bit of an issue, but Pete was confident this was going to be a great place. This, the little guy that was managing it was a little less confident. He was a little nervous about this crew of baseball guys coming in and having a party in his place. And after a day of baseball. So, but anyway, Pete convinced him that it was going to be a good thing. He'd make a lot of money and whatever. So, so that was kind of my, my baptism into the whole Dom Day thing. And, and what happened was true to form, we have the party there. Cote and a bunch of guys are on the table dancing at about 11 o'clock. And some of the boys start bowling, right? And normally when you bowl, you try, you wait until the pin setting machine is off the floor. But <laughs> not not these guys, right? So they're they're clanking balls off of this thing, and there's dents in it. And the the guy that the young kid that's working there is going bananas, right? He's yelling at us, and eventually he just he just walked away and said, "I I can't do anything about it." So anyway, the the big claim to fame for the plantation bowl was was it had this circular parking lot out front, right, where you could drop somebody off, and in the middle of the parking lot, it had this <laughs> huge white horse that was kind of rearing up on his hind legs so his front legs were in the air and its hind legs were it was like in this pose right and this horse was big like it was probably 14 15 feet high made of concrete made of concrete solid concrete right so we have the party everything goes well you know and then pete calls me the next Two days later, I guess it would have been a Sunday. It would have been a Monday. He says, man, we got a problem. The guy at the plantation bowl is not happy, right? We did some damage. We got to go meet with the guy, right? But he didn't know what the damage was. And I'm thinking, I was living in Mississauga at the time. I'm going, okay, I don't know what would have happened. Maybe a broken table, whatever. So, so again, there's no cell phones, nothing back in the day. So Pete somehow got jammed up at work. He couldn't make this meeting. We we're supposed to meet the guy at five o'clock. So I show up, right? And I'm waiting for Pete. He doesn't, he doesn't show. So I figure I better go meet this guy by myself. So I go in there and this guy is hopping mad. He is fucking pissed. And I don't know why. Right. So I, I say, listen, like you're upset, you know, did we break a table? Was there, was there dishes that were broken? Was it something in the bowling alley? And he says, he, he point, he wiggled his finger at me and he says, come on outside with me. Right. So we go outside. And I look up and I notice that this horse was missing a leg. One of the legs that were sticking up in the air was gone. <laughs> I'm going, That's not good. So, and I'm thinking, 
but I don't want to say anything because I'm thinking, okay, maybe it was probably was one of our guys, but I don't know for sure. Right. Like, I don't know the whole story behind this. Right. So he says, you see that? And I said, what? And he says, somebody stole the horse's fucking leg. <laughs> so, so I'm trying to backpedal a little bit because, you know, I'm, I'm thinking he's trying, he's threatening to phone the cops. And I said, listen, we'll investigate, like we'll do a full investigation. We'll get all the boys together and see if it was any of our guys. I, and I knew that it probably was, but I also knew this guy didn't have any evidence, right? There was no video or whatever, no surveillance. So, so that was my baptism into um, sort of the, the upper echelon of Domde dealing with all this stuff. And I, and I, to this day, don't know what happened to that, to that leg. There's rumors about who did it and who took it and whatever, but I don't, I don't really know. Um, who actually took the uh, the concrete saw and and, and demoed this? Cote, Cote, do you have any color you can add to this story, Cote? Yeah. I I I don't. I just remember when we left, there was a, a huge number of us came out the front doors all at once, and guys were going to Apache Burger, everything, and and I really I I, I don't know much. I don't really remember much more than that. Um, I just you know that I, I remember seeing that thing and going back a few years later and going oh that thing's still missing its leg so i won't say much more than that and i as i say i, I like minnow said really not sure who did it but um it was pretty comical and and minnow there he was as 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 an early god learning how to stick handle very well so it'll be uh do we think that this leg will make an appearance at dom day 43 Oh. I think that leg's long gone. Yeah, long it's with, gone. It's with, Jimmy, it's with Jimmy Hoffa. In the Humber River. <laughs> Good to know, guys. So I guess, Min, one of the things, obviously, that as you kind of begun to take leadership over, over the tournament of Dom Day, one of the greatest traditions um, that is a part of this tournament arised uh, in the late 90s, and that is our relationship with the hospital for, for sick kids. Um, so why don't you kind of take us back to where this all began as somebody who is, who was a big part of that? Yeah. So what had happened, it was actually earlier than the late nineties. What had happened was now again, for just to set the stage a little bit. So this is, it was 1994. Um, so the majority of the guys, it was a fairly consistent group now. Like there wasn't a lot of new guys being added and guys leaving. It was, it was a pretty, pretty solid core group that were now early thirties, mid thirties, they had kids. Most of the guys were married. Um, and what had happened was um, Nikki and, and Teresa Wolf, their eldest daughter, um, Nicole had a serious uh, medical issue. And as did another guy that played an attorney, a guy by the name of Bobby Wittes, Bobby and Donnelly Wittes, uh, their daughter had a, a very serious, was born with a very serious uh, medical condition and both girls spent quite a bit of time at the hospital for sick kids um in their and their there were babies they were in their you know i think nicole might have been four four and a half and and kirsten was was a baby and spent a lot of time there and of course we were a pretty close-knit community at that point and you know all you want to do is is help like how, how do you help you know um so we thought it would be a good idea to um you know, raise some money, do a bit of fundraising for the hospital. And we weren't quite sure how we were going to do that. So 
um, we visited the foundation, the Hospital for Sick Children's Foundation, and, and you know, talked to them about our tournament, and this is what we did. And they, they were a little bit leery at first because, you know, we weren't a registered charity. Um, they asked about, you know, our books and records of which, you know, I said I better check Lil's van for them because I don't, I don't really know where they might be. They, they wanted to know like who ran Dom Day, and I said, well, you know, it's Ten Man Corporation. I didn't know what else to say. So, well, so where's your minute book? Right. And I said, well, we don't, that might be in Lil's van as well. So anyway, we got off to a bit of a rocky start, but they, they understood exactly what we were trying to do. It wasn't going to be a huge amount of money in their minds anyways. And they didn't really know how long we were going to be with them. So they gave us these boxes. I don't know if you guys remember those boxes that were, you know, like a little Halloween type size box, right. We put the pennies in back in the day. And these, these were our, our first um, money collection repository. And, and they had a little bear on it with a bandage leg and an arm and a sling or something like that. So, so that was kind of how things started. And we had, we had started the diamond side grill, I think a couple of years before that Lil was our, our master griller. And uh, we thought, well, we'll, we'll charge people for a hot dog or a hamburger or whatever. And I'll never forget the first year like we had those little boxes filled with tens and twenties and, and fifties. I had to send babe over to, to Mrs. P's place and get one of those big pickle jars, you know, those big um, glass containers because, you know, we needed somewhere to put all this money. So, so that's, that's kind of how we started. We started back in 94 and, and I think we raised maybe $1,200, something like that, which was a lot of money. I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot in today's, today's terms, but, you know, back in 94, it was a, it was a pretty good effort and it kind of grew from there. So I guess kind of building off of that then, Min, so 94, this tradition starts, we raise about $1,200. Um, and, and like everything at Dom Day, a tradition is born out of, out of a simple act. Um, what, you know, what was the discussion coming into future Dom days about continuing this tradition and layering on some of the things that we might have done in the future, uh, whether it be a silent auction or a raffle or all that sort of stuff? Like what kind of built on to get to this point, do you think? Well, I mean, we knew that, um, you know, it was easy to do, right? It was easy to have people, you know, stuff money into a box or put it into, you know, a a jar or whatever the case might be, that wasn't a problem. So we decided that, you know, we can do a lot better than that. Like, you know, we can, if, if we put a little bit of sweat equity into it, we can, you know, we started selling raffle tickets, right. Which required people to donate prizes, which again, being the group that we were, it was easy to, to solicit prizes from people like guys like, you know, Cote and Babe and um, you know, Mike Fuda, we're, we're fantastic at bringing prizes into the, the prize table and you'd sell once around the Jonesy. I remember it back in the day, you'd get about 50 tickets around Jonesy's waist. We did that. Um, of course we, we had the, uh, uh, how he eventually, or I think it was Flip Morrison that actually did the big board. He was the first guy to put the big 50, 50 board together and how he kind of took that over. Um, so, so like year after year, we added, one or two things on to raise a little bit of money. Um, and then eventually we, because we were all Rexdale, you know, born in Rexdale, most of us anyways, and that we had our roots there. Um, we decided to give back to the community a little bit. We thought it would be a good idea to kind of branch out a little bit and, and, 
and provide a little bit of money to arrest a Rexdale based charity. So, um, you know, I think the first year was, was the YMCA and at Bergamot. Um, then there was, uh, I remember Pete struck some type of relationship with a place called computers for kids. And it was an after school program for underprivileged kids that, you know, otherwise might've gotten trouble, but they wanted to, uh, to buy some computers for these kids and teach them a skill. Um, there's another place called Surrey place, which, uh, which was, a uh, uh, for children with aut autism. Um, so there was a lot Kipling acres. We, we provided some, some sponsorship for them one year. Um, there was, you know, when the Calgary floods took place, uh, we donated some money to, to, to folks out in Calgary when the Red River flooded, the Humboldt Broncos. So we've been all over the place. Like if it was a real, it had some Canadiana to it, then we were all over it, but we tried to stick to Rexdale um, and, and do a little bit of good within the community. I think the Green Home Public School lunch program was the last thing we did. Um, so yeah, that it's it's morphed into something that we're very proud of. And, and I think, um, you know, you guys, the young guys, the youths have really done a great job and, and taken to the next level. When you guys look back at the $1,200 uh, that you guys kind of started off with to over, I think as of last year, we hit about $149,000 raised for the Hospital of Sick Kids. I think, you know, and an amazing tradition, um, which similar to a lot of stuff within Domday began in humble means. Um, so hats off, obviously, to Minnow uh, and, and, everybody else uh, within the Dom Day community for, for that amazing contribution um, and that tradition that they've built. Just, just on that, Justin, and, and a couple things. Um, I, I think, you know, I remember going to the banquet on those original years that we started raising for, for sick kids originally. And there was great pride when it was announced what the, the money raised was. And guys were truly pumped up to say, yeah, you know what? Yeah. We're, we acted pretty stupid for a weekend, but this, truly is going to a good cause and then I think it kind of morphed when you went through the course of the year and people go are you still doing that Dom Day thing and we'd be like yeah and then you were you were very proud to be able to tell somebody that uh, of the fundraising efforts that went into it and, and people I think it legitimized the fact that yeah we were a bunch of clowns from Rexdale but we did some really good things and stuff like that and 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 I don't know if it's in your notes there but obviously it moved forward and then and then we were able to to go from a, a corporate perspective and, and raise a whole bunch more money. And then the prizes got bigger as guys like Feud and that dragged in some spectacular, um, you know, uh, auction items and things like that. So, and I, I don't know, Min, maybe you could, when were those years where we really banged off some big numbers? Well, I think, I think it was 2012, we hit our 50,000, right? So we'd gone about 15 years to get to 50,000. And, and there, like you say, I mean, there was so many people who did so much, uh, you know, you, you go back to guys like Lil and Jonesy and, you know, the uh, Steve Coates and his family and Dewey that running the barbecue, like that was a lot of work. I mean, it's a mm -hmm. lot of work to, to actually pull that off every year. So, but I think sort of our crowning moment was in 2012, when you hit $50,000 and we didn't know this, we get a call from the foundation one day and they said that your name of your organization is going to be on the wall. And we didn't really understand what wall that was. So we got an invitation to actually see this, this plaque. It was like a brick on a, on a, on a wall in the, the, uh, uh, the main floor of the hospital. So we went in there and, and it was, um, I think it said Dominion Day 
baseball or baseball tournament. And then right below it was the Royal Bank of Canada. Right. So, you know, not that we were in any way, shape or form in competition with the Royal Bank of Canada or, or certainly by way of donation, but it made you feel like, you know, we contributed something and that was a pretty good achievement to hit 50,000 at that point. So, you know, um, and like, like you say, Cote, it legitimized, uh, not that we really, you know, need to be legitimized, but it, it gave us a purpose to a no, certain we did. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but it gave us a purpose, right? It was a charity baseball tournament. And, and uh, you know, we didn't, um, I mean, at the end of the day, we, we did some good work with it. I think we had some 5,000, some 5,800, some $8,000 years when we got into the corporate sponsorship and that type of thing. So there was some, there was some banner years for sure. But all, all, all the work that went into it, right? Like all the, all the people like you guys are talking about, I mean, you think about, I mean, it was a group effort, you know, it wasn't, oh, yeah. you know, you had like, I, I think of, of Woodsy and Cindy and, you know, Kelsey and Sammy, and, you know, and the girls uh, did tons. They yeah, did they did quite, tons of it, you know, and, and the, as you say, the barbecue was just unbelievable, you know, and uh, just everything it was a real group effort. And uh, so, the, uh, and just, you know, as Cote was saying, just an honor to be a part of it. And then when you would tell us at the party, men, that we were up at whatever amount it was, it was just a roar in the crowd. Right. And just sort of, made it all worthwhile you know so it did it did legitimize us i i must say you know we we needed that and uh and my uh, wife you know after that because she usually wouldn't speak to me for about three days after dom day and then we, i tell her the total and she she'd actually start start talking to me again yeah. <laughs> yeah no that's that's amazing guys and and i you know i'm just looking at some of the numbers as far as what we've raised um, over the years. And, and the impressive thing is, you know, when I look back to 1999, which is kind of the first year that we officially, um, I, I would say, solidified the partnership um, with, with everybody, uh, with, with sick kids, where they started actually tracking uh, what we were doing. Um, you just see a, a continuous trend of the numbers going up year over year over year. And when we hit about 2016, is when we started to get past $10,000 raised um, in each of the last Dom days since. So I think it's just amazing to see, like you guys are saying, this community effort start from something to continue to grow year after year. And as somebody who, when we passed the $100,000 mark, got to go down to the hospital of sick kids with uh, a few of the young guys, um, the second generation, I know Dewey was there, I believe, um, Colin Woods was there, uh, Mike Woods, I think Amanda Coates was also there. There were a few of us who, who went down um, to what is uh, their, their night where they honor um, their, their donors and to see your plaque on the wall, um, you know, walking by and, and seeing that, it reminds you, especially for us who might not have, you know, uh, been there when you guys started this, to really see what it's all about. And, and like Minnow said, not in a competition, but you look on the wall and you see now that Dom Day's, you know, above names like the National Basketball Association, Subaru Canada, and things like that um, are really amazing. Um, and really, I think, solidifies why we do what we do. Um, so I would say hats off to all you guys on the phone, because I know you've all had uh, various roles in it, but hats off to the Dom Day community as a whole, because like you guys said, uh, many hands have gotten us to where we are today. All right, guys, thanks for that segment on Sick Kids. Um, like I said, a fantastic tradition. We're going to pivot um, 
onto a segment that we're going to call Fast Facts. And as Minnow alluded to at the top of the hour, the rise of Mike Minnow, the god, really originated from the party. And one of the things that we thought it would be very interesting is to bring in Minnow and have him discuss what he believes are the top five parties of all time. So we're going to run through Minnow's top five parties, and we're going to get some commentary from some of the guys on what they think went on at that party. Um, I know memories can be blurred. I will admit I've been to a few parties where I remember next to nothing. So we'll see how sharp you guys are as it comes to these Dom Days. So Minnow's number five ranked Dom Day party is Dom Day 30, which was at Sam and Pete's The Velvet Lounge. Minnow, do you want to cue us up? Yeah, so this was obviously a pretty special year, Dom Day 30. Um, we wanted to really, you know, knock it out of the park this year, that, that particular year. And, and we, we decided for whatever reason to go up to Woodbridge. And I, and I, it was funny because every other year we had always kind of earmarked someplace in Rexdale as our location or south of Tobacco. And I'm having a hard time remembering why we landed at this Salmon Pete's place. I think it was, that's the name. It was called the Velvet Lounge up in Woodbridge. And, and I don't remember, Donnie, like, why did we, why did we land there? How did we get there? I think Pete took the initiative on it. Um, I don't know. It had to be, it had to involve the price, you know, uh, something had to be a bargain up there. I don't know. No, none of us who, who was living up there. I mean, nobody, right. Was this the place that was on the other side of the 400 that was yeah. in those hotels? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I wasn't involved in that. Uh, I, I don't know how we ended up there. And I remember everybody saying, where is it? You know, where is it? And stuff. And it was a hike, right? Well, yeah. I mean, it, was, it was a good 45 minute trek from the park, I think. You know, so um, Are you walking. <laughs> oh. So it was a bit of a hike, but needless to say, it became a party that was remembered as the number five ranked party uh, in Dom Day history. Um, besides just being Dom Day 30, I remember this as one of the first parties that I went to. And one of the guys on this phone, and I believe his nephew and a few of his other uh, kids, ended up dancing uh, up on a platform uh, above the uh, above the bar. There was a platform, if you guys remember, uh, with a pole in the middle of it. Do you not remember this? There was like a there was a bunch of pool tables at this place, and above there was this platform with a stripper pole, and there was uh, Cote. And uh, Andrew uh, up on the uh, up on the uh, platform uh, doing a routine, uh, obviously not raising any money up there, but uh, you know enjoying the uh, the various perks of the Velvet Lounge. I I vaguely remember that. I, I really do. I remember people having hotels in the area and staggering across that parking lot after it was all said and done and stuff like that. But the rest of it's a bit of a blur. Probably wasn't a blur when but those were back in the days when you know and probably my Danny was playing and no different than Derek was showing up in that. And they would wheel in on our credit card. And it was always a bit of a shock. Thank goodness. You were three sheets to the wind when you went to uh, clear up your tab at the end of the night and it was $280 plus a tip. Right. And I know share bear has never, you know, forgiven Derek for that night at um, probably Remo's, maybe something like that, that uh, Derek had a tendency to ram the Patterson bill through the roof. But I was, I, I got the same, uh, I went through the same thing where the kids would just go up and put their drinks on my bill. And that place there uh, up at Sam and Pete's was one of those broken down golf carts for everybody. 
Well, and what, well, probably in the day, what were they? Five bucks a piece that added up. But I know, didn't but, ask. Didn't even well, ask. We, yeah, we noticed. Yeah, nor did Dan Coates. Yeah. Yeah, and neither did the guys who were receiving the mask either, just so you guys are aware. <laughs> so, guys, we're on to uh, Minnow's number four ranked party, which is Dom Day 28 at Blanche's, the Blanche pub debacle. Minnow, give us up. So this was an interesting one. We had we were on a pretty good roll, like through 1990 right up to 2003 or four. We had some pretty good party spots. Right, we had the Heritage for a number of years, the Winter Circle. We were down to Heads or Tails for a couple of years, all good spots. Uh, then we landed into a place called Stripes, which is at the corner of Barton Grove and. Uh, uh, Rex, no, Dixon Road. And the guy in there, his name was Tony, and he was a great guy. He, he was, he loved us, uh, gave us a great deal. Um, it was close to Rexdale, close to hotel. So it was a real good spot. And we, we were there for um, about three years. And then every three years or so, we just decided to change it up a little bit. So we went to a place called Straits you remember on Martin Grove and and then that lasted a year because they turned it into a wedding chapel or something after the year that we were there uh went back to Stripes because it was such a good spot and then in 2005 we were gonna we go back there and I remember calling Tony up it was late May and the guy wouldn't return my calls right so I'm wondering what the hell's going on and and finally he calls me back there's like two weeks to the draft and he says, Steve, I got bad news. I sold the place. And the new owners are going to take, uh, they don't take ownership until sometime in, in, in mid-July. And they're going to do some renovations and whatever. So sorry, but you can't have the party there. I'm going, oh, that's great. We got a month to go till Dom Day. We got no spot, no spot for the party. So I was living in Kitchener at the time. And I drive in. Cause we got to find a spot. I call the boys. I say, Hey, listen, here's where we're at. We got to find a place. So go back to the old haunts, right? Heads or tails isn't operating anymore. Uh, like I said, straights is now some type of wedding chapel. That's not going to work for the boys. All the old haunts are gone. Like there's just no, nowhere else to go. So I'm driving around Rexdale and I end up somehow in the other side of 27 on Atwell. And I see this sign says Blanche's Tavern. So I figured, okay, well, I'm going to go check this place out, see what it's like. So I go in there, and this is about 4.35 o'clock on a Thursday or Friday afternoon. And there was a bunch of guys in there reading the racing form, right? That, this, that was this place, drinking draft beer, uh, reading the racing form. So the guy behind the bar comes out. His name was Bill. Uh, and he says, hey, I'm Bill. And I explained what, what I wanted to do it had to be exclusive. There was going to be a hundred people. And this guy thought it was the greatest thing ever because this place was not a happening joint. But at the end of the day, we were kind of desperate. So we agreed that we were going to do the party at this place, but I had to come back the next week and bring them a deposit. Right. It's like 500 bucks or something. So I bring the guy 500 cash, give him the money. And I don't really have a receipt for it. Just kind of, you know, Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. We're all good. So <clears throat> I go in there at the end of that week again to, to, to firm up the, uh, the menu, the, you know, the sequence of events. And there's, there's no more Bill. Like, I don't know where Bill is. Blanche is there. I said, hey, Blanche, you know, 
I told her who I was and, you know, representing Dom Day and we had the party booked and she looked at her records and said, oh, yeah, yeah I, I, I see all that. Right. And I said, well, you know, I gave Bill five hundred dollars as a down payment. She said, you, you did what? So you gave Bill money. And I said, yeah. he says, well, we can't find him. He's gone. I said, what do you mean he's gone? He says, well, Bill's a. You know, like he's, he's been in and out of jail. He says, you give the guy 500 bucks, he's out of here, right? So all of a sudden, the guy that's hosting the party's in the wind. He's got our 500 bucks. And I'm trying to negotiate now with Blanche because we need this party to happen. So she was pretty good. She understood that we got kind of, we got kind of hosed a little bit. And the place was small, but we had a great night. We had a really, really fun party there. It was a little tight. Um but like some of the behind the scenes stuff that that you had to deal with was just, you know, you shook your head. You wonder how the hell you get out of some of those situations. That place was where Bell or uh, what was that? The end of uh, Atwell. Is that right? Atwell yeah. and yeah, Benfield or Belfield? Belfield. Belfield. I'll be all right. Yeah. Belfield. Yeah. I think it's become, I think it went to McKenzie's pub after that it became McKenzie's pub. And then now it's a, it's a jazz bar. It's like an after hours jazz bar. Good. Let's go back. <laughs> Bill's willing to DJ. I think so. Uh, we can, we can see if he's still available. Did they ever find the money from Bill? Minnow? No, not that I know. No, <laughs> I think Bill was gone. All righty guys. <laughs> On to our th number three ranked party. And this is a party that I'm very interested in because as somebody who's been to Dom Day a long time, I've heard the phrase that we're going to discuss, but I don't know where the hell it comes from. Dom Day 13, the Heritage Inn, the food fucking food party. Donnie, well, maybe you can cue us up with, on this one. Well, I, you know, this would have been, so this was at the Heritage, right? Which at that point in time, I'm thinking was might've been our third or fourth time there. I mean, we had, we had settled in and uh, yeah. you know, we were, it was becoming a regular spot. We were also having a number of the Dom day drafts there as well. So two weeks before we, we call them up, we'd set up a space and we'd go in there and do the draft and then geared up for the party. And it was a terrific setup. That was the, that was the thing I remember about that place. Right. So it was a, this lower level that, that served as a, uh, seating and the buffet area and also a dance floor right and then sort of an upper deck uh with a railing around the whole upper deck so the upper deck had tables all over the place and uh, actually had a stage at one end and then a railing around just a really good setup and they 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 had decent you know decent food had treated us well for a couple of years and then um i you know and i don't i don't know how it all evolved but Somehow I ended up on the stage um, as I think somebody pushed me up there or something. And, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, Billy, Billy Pino was doing the DJing, right. And uh, I think I'd had a couple of cocktails and uh, Billy, Billy threw on this song. And at the time the boys were getting restless because the food wasn't that good that year. Right. It was pretty scarce. Right. And we had some decent sized guys that could really go after it. And we kept asking, you know, for more food. We want more food and whatever. And so I got up there and I got a hold of the microphone and I just, you know, we would say, you know, can we get some more food, get some more food. And then I don't, I don't really recall exactly what happened, but Billy threw on that song by free. 
it's all all right now, you know, and and <laughs> and then I just started singing my own lyrics to this song, right? And it was food, fucking food. We need more food, fucking food. <laughs> and I would just start ad libbing on it and just take you know, those vegetables back. Yeah, yeah. We want food, fucking food. <laughs> yeah. We got we got too many fucking creamers. Food, fucking food. Have you looked at the size of this guy? And I'd point to Jonesy or whatever. Right? We say, need food, fucking food. And then I started taking the microphone and I would throw it out to the audience for the for the chorus for the food, fucking food. And then sooner, all of a sudden, there was like there had to be 30, 35 people came up to the stage, right? Right, Cote? Front oh, of the yeah. stage. And I would throw the microphone out and they would just jump into the food fucking food part. And then I would grab it back and I would ad lib some lyrics. And it was just and then I, I, I don't think know. you got up on top of the seating area that was actually higher up, and you yeah. literally had your hand, you would almost support yourself by putting your hand on the yeah. roof and just everybody egged you on from there. Like it just yeah. it went was frenzious. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it truly was remarkable. And, uh, and then I, I think, you know, then the party started, whatever. And I, I think Billy threw it on again later, you know, and I ended up again there that same night going back up. And then, and then the, the next few years, you know, um, they kept bugging me. I remember Fuda was one, he loved it. And he kept, he kept queuing it up with the DJ and he, he would, he wouldn't tell me. And then the DJ threw the song on, and then he'd be he'd be like pushing me out there, right? And I, it probably went on for a good seven, eight, nine years. Probably, oh yeah, you know. And so, it was always a highlight. It was one of those songs, you know, that uh, you know maybe it'll make a comeback one day. I don't know, but uh, it was. Hopefully, fun. our executive producer Dizzy maybe can dig dig up the jingle, yeah. and he's already given us the indication yeah. that we could hear that but, as part of this podcast. Going to be nice. But that that place was rocking. I mean, it was the, you know, the roof was shaking. Everybody was into it. It was just, it was fun. And the song is great, you know, but the, t- the food fucking food was just perfect for it. So, so a couple of, uh, Justin, just a couple of things about that, about those parties at the heritage one, you know, that was in the days when Billy Pina would play the whole tournament and then he would disc jockey and he, he was awesome. He was a great disc jockey and he brought the tunes that we wanted to hear. So credit to, to, to to now we're relocated to Ridgeway to Bill Pino because he did an amazing job. And it was at one of those that we didn't see Tex. Well, Tex, Tex could periodically do some silly things, but it was he, the year that they had to bring, move him out of the, out of the party. And he went out on a luggage cart and it was the <laughs> best because he was completely comatose. And that was the only way they could move him by getting him a luggage cart and getting him out of the room. They took him up to his room. That's right. A luggage yeah. cart. Fortunately, yeah. he had a room there, you know, or or else they would have been wheeling it down Rexdale Boulevard to Mrs. P's. But uh, yeah, he was he <laughs> it was a beauty. He would error a few times at Dom Day, and, and Linda would just stay away. And so whether it was Remo's or the party and that, he just it was like, okay, time to let loose. And Tex Tex went for it. <laughs> the, en- the engineer that he was. So so Minnow, is that how you remember the heritage in? Yeah, that was basically, I, I remember, um, yeah, like Donnie, I, I think it was, there was, there was, they were late with the food as well. And then when they brought it, it was like way underwhelming. Right. So uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a treat. And, and it was funny because 
all of the staff, I mean, they were working their ass off trying to get the food out. They'd be peeking out, right? They're wondering what the hell's going on out there, right? There's a guy on the stage, he's singing food, fucking food. And like, are people actually getting mad? Like, is there going to be a revolt here? Right? Is this place going down or what? Like, <laughs> I mean, you can imagine there's probably a bunch of young kids working in the kitchen and, you know, we got a bunch of guys out there yelling at, screaming over the microphone. So it was, it was, it was a lot of fun, but that was, that, that place became, became kind of our home. Like that was, that was a great atmosphere. It was just exactly the right size. You know, it was, it was really a super place and they, they treated us well. And, and I think, you know, we might've stayed there, but I, I believe they went out of business. I think the heritage kind of went under and the winter circle yeah. closed and that was kind of the end of it. Right. That forced us to, to kind of move on and, and, uh, and look for other places. And then guys, guys ended up dancing on that railing that I was talking about. So, you know, they had that railing that went around the whole yeah. lower, lower level. And I, I think Kote, I think you were one, I know my brother too. And you know, a few other idiots were up there. I mean, the thing was only somewhat six inches wide or something, you know, but yeah. But the fact was if we had a fallen off there, it was like 12 feet in the air, yeah. like <laughs> 10 feet there, we would have killed ourselves. And it's amazing that we hung on, as I said, you can actually put your hand on the roof and that's kind of what you're balancing from guaranteed. We had drinks in our hand and it was, but the beauty of that place, like you said, men was the fact that there was a hotel hook to it. Right. Yeah. So yeah. everybody got crazy. rooms there and then you just, stumbled back or in texas case you know you got your some assistance so that, that, that it was and it was convenient right what was that place seven minute drive from casefield yeah and there was lots of guys back in the day they didn't go home to get changed they 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 were at the blender party finished at the blender party and then we're at the at the, at the main party right so no dressing really up convenient. No, no dressing up guys could walk that's hilarious, guys. So Minnow's number two Dom Day. We've a Dom Day party. We've already kind of talked on, but I, maybe if there's any additional thoughts are on the Plantation Bowl or the Year of the Horse. Minnow, you got anything to add to this one? The only other thing I remember that year was it was '87. It was the year we we call it the Shot Herd Round the World, and one of the all-time greats, Lester Brunel, um, one of the greatest catchers of the game's ever seen him and Ann and kind of were set the gold standard for catching. He was, um, and you got to know Lester, like he's one of the most laid back guys ever, right? Nothing bothered him. Um, he was just kind of there having fun. He was chilling behind a plate. He had a cigarette in one hand, a beer in the other. He had his arms on the fence, you know, sometimes he'd take a glove with him. Sometimes he didn't, didn't really. And zero chance he's ever going to go for a ball. Right. I mean, if the ball goes out into the field, even if it goes 10 feet, typically the catcher, there's zero chance Lester's going to go get the ball. So he's playing on Bobby's team that year. And I think it was, they were down like 11 runs going into the bottom of the whatever number of innings we played, seven innings or nine innings or whatever it was that year. It was Pete's and, team. Huh? Was it Pete's, Pete's team? Yeah, Pete's team. Yeah. So, so Lester comes up and, you know, he wasn't known for his baseball prowess by any stretch and they needed a couple runs I want to say to to win the game and he had had maybe a hit all tournament he comes up to the plate and he hits this screaming rope of a line drive into right center field right in between the guys that were playing out there and and Pete Steen win the tournament Lester is the hero and that kind of morphed into the the events maybe at the uh, I think they were pretty excited about that win and then you know 
all of a sudden, as we said earlier, the the horse had no leg by the end of the night. So that that's kind of my memory of that night. Oh, that's hilarious. That's hilarious. And, and and it's funny you mentioned that because in in one of the episodes that is yet to premiere yet, that is one of Delmer's uh, top moments is the shot heard around the world. Um, so funny, funny how, you know, these stories kind of become interconnected uh, as you kind of think about the shot heard around the world turns into the year of the horse. Um, and the number one ranked party of all time is one we've talked about briefly uh, many times before, but it was party number one uh, at Bob Brandt's house. And that is uh, where Cote ended up on the roof. Minnow, do you have any thoughts on that one? Yeah, you know what? I don't know why the hell I put that on my list. I can't remember because I wasn't there. So no. I, I remember hearing the story like you guys from one of the first podcasts you guys did. But I don't know. I don't honestly know why I put that on the list. Okay. I'm talking about the parties. Mena, what, what Dom Day was it when we went to the one that Bobby partly owned the bar and Dave, I thought Dave Payne was involved in it. it that was, like, was that was small. like, yeah, that was like 80, 97, 98 at the Markland pub. Yeah. Yeah. They, Wendy, Wendy Coates got punted yeah. out of there. That was the two, that, that had the two floors to it. Right. Remember it had the, it had yeah. the basement and it had the, the main floor. Yeah, that was an interesting place as well, but it, it was a little far and there, there was no hotels or whatever around it. So I think it didn't get. Uh, we had those places with steps. The other one was that one that was down at uh, Kipling in the Queensway that we went for a couple of years at, right? Steep. Yeah, steps. that was heads or tails. That was heads or Yeah, yeah that was yeah. silly there. Yeah. That was the, that was the, uh, the not so famous red snapper speech too. That was a, that was a low, <laughs> low moment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because there's probably been, you know, in four, what did we play? 42 Dom days, Justin. We've probably had, if you include all the house parties back in the early days, there's probably been over 20 locations for a party. Right. And the only time really like, you know, that we had a, a problem was, was in 87 there at the, uh, at the plantation. Rambunctious. Wouldn't have us back. Yeah. I was going to say rambunctious, but respectful by the sounds of it. You guys, yeah, pretty uh, much made it through 43 years, 42 years rather, uh, without much, much of a hitch. So transitioning from the parties into another big memory uh, from when you guys were younger is a road trip um, that went to Buffalo. So I know last episode we talked about Pittsburgh, but this is a road trip where you guys went down to Buffalo uh, and you watched the Calgary Flames play. Um, Cote, why don't you lead us off? Because my understanding is you were on that trip. Yeah, it, I, I believe we probably did it maybe three or four years where the Flames would, uh, that was part of the one of their, part of their swing was into Buffalo. And so we would have a gang of sometimes we'd have 12 guys. I remember the year we had 20 guys and we would go down to Buffalo and uh, Darren Bauer, who was a Clarkson guy, Buff, um, had a really good friend that owned uh, a tavern that was probably three miles from the odd, which was where the Sabres were playing at the time uh, called Frank's Tavern. And so we would go down and get there about noon hour and we'd watch the NFL games and then catch the seven o'clock game on a Sunday night at the odd. And we were all fired up because babe was our Rexdale buddy and he's playing for the Calgary flames against Buffalo. So there was a variety of stories of us going there. I think probably the, the classic was the year we took the two vans down 
from from Rexdale. We rented two 10, 10 uh, passenger vans, uh, drove down uh, Gordy Copeland and Stacy Copeland's buddy, John Coleman, uh, because I think he didn't drink. He, dro- he drove one and who knows who drove the other one. Um, but we went down there. That was the year that one of those vehicles, uh, when we went to leave Frank's Tavern, wouldn't go forward. So we drove it to the arena in arena traffic or game traffic backwards, three miles to the game. And that was pretty classic. Whoever, whoever was capable of driving that thing. And then we had to rent cars to get home and it was a complete debacle. But I think this time, as if I'm correct, the time that I had the little incident with the, the ice, I think that's the night that Minnow left the game early, if I'm correct. Does that ring a bell, Min? Yeah. Um, you left yeah, after the second was, period. You thought yeah, it was we over. Were at, I think we were at, at Frank's and uh, had a few cock. And that was a, I think that was the time that Jonesy did the 100 wings. I believe you're right. Yep. Right. So we're there at noon, and Jonesy popped back 100 wings and probably about 20 beer. And this, right. is, by, this is by 6 o'clock. And then we went to the game and, and we were all in pretty good shape by that point. And, and anyway, the, the second period comes to an end and I thought the game was over. So I go out and find my way back. I think I took a cab back to Frank's Tavern. Nobody was there, obviously, right? Like Frank's Tavern was, was not in the best part of Buffalo and it was not the most popular bar in Buffalo. And I think there was issues with like Sunday openings back in those days. It didn't really, wasn't supposed to be open. So the only guys who were in this place were us, right? So, so anyway, back to you, Cote, with your, your incident on the ice there. Yeah. So, I, you know, we were just pounding the beers and the McCrays were there and Woodsy and Annan, and there was a, a big gaggle of us. And so um, game, game ends, and this is back in the day of the low glass that they had. And for some unforsaken reason, I'm like, I'm going to go on the ice. So the game has, the buzzer has just gone and I scale that small glass and I'm out on the ice as they're just kind of cleaning up and the players are going out the far exit and the security guys go mental. They're like, get off the ice. And I'm like, my hips killing me. I can't turn right. Get off the ice. I said, my hip is killing me. I can't turn right. So I start walking across the ice and, the boys in the crowd are just losing their mind. They're like, Cote's on the ice and he probably in some shit. So <laughs> I head towards the end exit and there's all of a sudden a bit of a guffuffle. <laughs> I can see police. And as I'm approaching it, all of a sudden I see Babe and Lanny and they're like, oh, no, he's one of my buddies. He's with us. And is that kind of how it, how it happened to you getting me off the ice, babe? Yeah, it's it's great you think that way, Cote. Um, I I remember distinctly Lanny saying, "Is that your buddy on the ice?" And the the shortened glass of fourteen feet high, you know, <laughs> that a kangaroo couldn't get over. You fucking got over, and he's on the ice, and he is by the blue line, and he's not even close to getting off, and the police are surrounding him. And Lanny looks at me and he goes, isn't that your buddy? I go, it is. And so Lanny and I skate out there. You can imagine you're, you're playing, you just finished playing. You, we won and we're happy, we're excited. And I got to go, I got to skate up to these security guards and go, yeah, you know, sir, he's with me. 
well, he can't turn left. Don't worry about it. I've got him. So we got to, Lanny and I drag Cote the fuck off the ice and go, you know, I'm just looking at him and just like, and I don't even know what people are thinking. And, you know, if they're even watching in the crowd, but I know what all the guys are thinking, you know, <laughs> so we get Cote off the ice. And, and as I said, like the police there, they're not like, Hey, you know, how you doing? And they've all got their hands ready to get their guns out and clubs to whack them on the head. And so he's got to stay with us until we basically get in the dressing room. And then, you know, I, I told him, I said, Cote, stay the fuck here. Do not move till I come out. So I come out of the dressing room. He's gone. He, he's gone. And that, I think that was the night that Chevy was on the bus. And uh, it was just, it was an absolute nightmare. Oh, Chevy yeah. went and talked to Tim Hunter and, or, oh. or, or Crispy. He wanted Crispy. to tell Crispy He was talking to Crispy, yeah. yeah. But I think one of the best times, you know, in Buffalo was one of the first times I, I played w- with Calgary and went into Buffalo. And because it was so tough to get tickets in Toronto and, you know, it was sort of every other year you played there, uh, everybody came down and, you know, as they said, at Frank's Tavern. So after the game, we are going to Frank's Tavern. The guys were – so I talked to a bunch of the guys in the team to go. So you could only imagine that we had Reggie Lemon, we had Tim Hunter, we had Kent Nielsen. And, you know, I mean, to introduce those to the guys, the guys to them at, you know, after they've been drinking for 12 hours easily, it was, it was a nightmare. It was, it was so funny. I mean, there's so many comments that came out and so many things happened, but you know, the, the guys from the flames, you know, they had a great time, you know, I mean, you know, eating chicken wings and drinking beer at this place. They thought it was great. So they, they laugh because they, they were sticking me with the bill. So we drank, we ate all night. The bill was like $72, <laughs> but it was men. Remember, remember Reggie Lemlin? Oh yeah. Remember he well, saw that there's a goal that, you know, probably it yeah. didn't go in, but they counted it as in. And he well, was the best part, my- the best part was, so, so we'd been at, Frank's Tavern before the game, went to the game, went back to, and this is like a Sunday night. We got to work the next day, right? So this is like 1030 on a Sunday <laughs> night now. And this bus pulls up, right? And then Babe gets out. I remember Steve Conroy, oh Tim God. Hunter, Lanny McDonald, um, Reggie Lemlin, and then Kent Nielsen gets off. The, and you got to understand Frank's Tavern is a dump. Okay. And it's in a bad part of the t- town. It's 1030 at night. We're loaded. This guy gets off in a full mink coat. Like this thing, this thing is down to his ankles, right? He's going into Frank's Tavern, right? And he's got a hat on and everything. So, so this is going to be a good night. So the boys get in there and it's just like the, the flame. There must've been about eight guys. They bait flames and the rest of us. And that night, um, I think the flames lost in a disputed goal. Yeah. And Reggie Lemlin was a goalie. And Reggie got into it quick. Like he, he, he was having a good time. And about midnight, the highlights of the game came on. And back in the day, there was no video replay or whatever. Like, you know, the refs would call it whatever they saw on the ice. And, and it actually showed that the puck didn't go in the net. It hit the crossbar and it hit the goalpost. And Reggie's up on the bar and he's grabbing the TV and he says, I fucking told you, see, ting, ting, off the post. No fucking goal. No fucking goal. So that was a treat. And, and the guys, like, 
you know, we obviously didn't know them, babe. They were all your friends and all your buddies, but they, they had a great time. And we stayed till God knows what time it was. It was probably two, two or three in the morning. And then we had to go home. You guys had to go back to the hotel. So it was, yeah. a, it was a treat. Uh, those are some great times. I remember, you know, Jonesy on that, uh, you know, he, he ate 102 chicken wings yeah. and he told me like, cause when you come out of the game, you're, you know, the guys are just hammered. You have just finished playing a, a game, you know, and they're just blathering. Like they're just, anything comes out of their mouth. So Jonesy comes up to me, he hugs me. And he's got to be, you know, he's put on a bit of weight and he goes, Oh babe, because I had 102 wings, but he goes, I could have had more, but I had two roast beef on wax before. <laughs> I was like, Hey, congrats, Josie. I think, you know, they'll probably have a plaque up at Frank's Tavern soon for you. Yeah. And that was that. And then he got interviewed at the, by the hockey night in Canada crew. They gave him the t- towel and said, Hey, Jonesy, what did, what did it take to do the 102 wings? <laughs> We had, we had another one too. And, and oh. I think that was the night that you brought the players back was the night you were delayed getting there, babe, because you had to go back to the rink and find Casey's wallet that wallet. he'd lost in the odds. So there's the flames being left with a, a bunch of animals. And well, then what, you, you eventually showed up. Casey left his, lost what, his wallet. One of the, one, well, one of those nights case case over got overserved, and he was, he was actually laying down in a bar and i forget the name of the bar but this, he was actually laying down passed out in this bar and i i think we had to go back to the bar to try to find the wallet i think it was the bar oh is that right yeah yeah, yeah we I, did the, I think we yeah. did the bar in the odd was it yeah. yeah but because he was just it was a mess and uh but i you know i was just thinking we had some great stories Cote, i always tell one about you and we <laughs> we we would normally end up with seats in the end zone like in the end zone. So the second tier in the end zone, whatever. Yeah. And there's, like you said, there's sometimes I, I, there's like 20, 25, 30 people there. Right. And, and uh, we're sitting there and we're throwing back the beers or whatever you went up to get some more beers and you came back oh, and fell down he, the stairs. he had two 22 ounces or whatever they were. Right. And all of a sudden you just heard this kadoom, kadoom, kadoom. And here comes Kote on his butt down the stairs with two beers and pops up. And he's like, didn't spell a drop. <laughs> but remember that, Donnie, the whole section. And I ended yeah. up landing beside the McCrae's, Alan Gordy. And my shoes came off yeah. and rolled down the aisle. And the place yeah. just erupted, just yeah. went nuts. But yeah, I spill any beer. Yeah. I'm on the bench, Justin. And I hear the crowd erupt. And I look up because I know where the guys are. And I see Cote. He's got his two beer up. And I don't know who I was sitting beside. I think it was Tim Hunter. He goes, is that your buddy? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Another fun yeah. moment in yeah. NHL <laughs> hockey history memory. And then and I, think was, was, I think it was Gordy. Gordy was there and, uh, and uh, <laughs> it was no smoking in the, in the, in the zone there, or whatever. And Gordy lit one up or whatever. And, and Frank, Frank from Frank's Tavern came to the game. You remember he was with yeah. Buff and whatever, yeah. and he, he was sitting like two rows in front of us, and 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 Gordy lit another one up, and then Frank uh, Frank was starting to get a little heated because our our mouths were starting to run and whatever, and then, so Frank actually stood up and turned around and said, you know, look, you guys can't smoke here, and we're not going to have any of this any of this swearing. You know, it's just you know whatever. He he was real serious, and he sat down whatever. So I think the next <laughs> the next break. 
<laughs> I stood up and I said, I said, hey, Gordy, you got another fucking cigarette? <laughs> and Frank just lost it, right? And Buff was there too. And Buff was trying to calm him down. Oh, yeah, because that's how the, the, the yeah, yeah. He knew but him. then there, there was another time when Wally and Fuda came down to visit oh, me. My God. I, I was oh. living in Buffalo, right? And Wally and Fuda showed up. And again, same thing. They show up in the afternoon and, you know, we were going to some some bar and cranking them back and whatever. We head down to the game. And then after the game, we go down to the try to see Babe and they got the cage there. You know, the they, that retractable gate or whatever yeah. it was, I think. And, and these guys they were just, you know, I mean, they just couldn't talk. Right, Babe? I mean, just trying oh, to talk, yeah. talk through the remember through the Bowie? Yeah. Oh. And Bowie, it was just it was just bad. And so we got in the car and that was back. Remember the first car phones were like screwed to your car, like to the floor, like, and so we're going back to my place and their Sabres had a call-in show, right? WGR. And they had a call-in show post game show. So I get on the car phone I call the guy and we get through and I'm like, so-and-so whatever. I'm like, man, you got to play that Patterson more. I mean, yeah, hell of a game tonight. And, he, you know, he's not getting enough ice time. The guy, whoever it was, you know, this and that, whatever. Okay, we hang up. Thanks for your call. Wally calls. Gets through. Hey, man, you got to play that Patterson, that number 11. He's a hell of a player. What are you guys doing? And what's the coach thinking? You know, this <laughs> hangs up. Feuda calls. <laughs> you got What's this guy, Babe Patterson, man? You guys got to play him more. You know, that's part of your problem. Why are you guys playing him more? This is when he was playing for the Sabres, you know, just hilarious stuff, you know. Just I remember getting to the rink the next day, and that guy came up to me. He goes, "Man, you got a lot of fans here." I go, "Yeah, yeah, they do, don't I?" Because we happen to tune into it. I go, "Oh, that's Futz's voice. I know that." And then Wally, and oh my, it was. Yeah. But one of my favorites was when it was one of my first years with the Flames, and we were losing nine two against Buffalo but I had two goals and I'm sitting on the bench and the guys were chanting in the crowd. Cause basically all the fans had left except for, uh, you know, our buddies and they were going, put out babe, put out babe. And I remember sitting on the bench going, Oh my God, this is just, just a nightmare. Didn't Crispy say something? Or- oh, it was, it was Badger. Oh, it was Badger. Yeah. Are they, are they chanting for Dave? We don't have a Dave on our team. I was like, oh, fuck. no, it's Babe. And uh, Justin, one one other story that took place, and it would have been one of those ones, but we go down there one year. I, I drove down, and I had taken John Dixon, Dicker, the world-famous Dicker, with us. And so we'd gone, and we're going <laughs> to meet Babe after and go out for wings and stuff like that. And the deal always was, was that that was the end of their Eastern trip. And they would fly out of Toronto at nine o'clock back to Calgary on the Monday morning. And Babe got permission to stay at his parents' place on the Sunday night. So game ends, Babe comes out to see us after, I think we went for a few beers, but at the end of the day, I'm like, babe, I'm loaded. I can't drive. Dicker is toast in the back seat. (laughs) Babe had to drive my Toyota Celica that had bald tires in a rainstorm from Buffalo back to Rexdale dropped the two of us off and Dicker was in the back seat doing his moaning the whole way. And I think you were actually second star that night. So there's babe in his suit driving my piece of shit car back from Buffalo. 
and um, and and sure he got some chirping over that one, but I was like, thanks for the lift, babe. Remember the guy at the border quickly, the customs agent. He goes, so you play with the flames, and you got these two guys in the car, and you're driving back to Toronto. And Dicker, Dicker's not even awake. We have his passport though, because Dicker's like, remember in the back, you know. <laughs> Awesome. That was classic. That was beautiful. Yeah, just another, just another trip to Buffalo. Yeah. Well, guys, we're gonna end it there. Another great episode. I want to start off by thanking Minnow for joining us today. So, Minnow, I'm gonna give you the first last word. Minnow, final thoughts. Well, first of all, thanks for thanks for the invite. It's been a blast. Um, yeah, I, I just, you know, my final thoughts are are, you know, I'd like to thank, you know, you, Justin, and and your group. Of, of young guys, the second generation guys for doing such a fantastic job of, you know, taking that torch that we passed to you and, and, uh, and actually making Dom day like even better. I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, a testament to your commitment and, and your love of the game, just the way we loved it for all those years. So um, not, not that, you know, the first generation guys, are still lots of us around. So lots of us like to uh, compete a little bit and we want to contribute to the game and so on and so forth. But I think, you know, of all the things that I'm happy about, it's been a fantastic run for 40, 40 some odd years. But the fact that there's going to be, you know, a sustainable element to this where that, that young generation is going to make the tournament even better than it's always been is that's that's really, really super satisfying to, I think, most of the guys. Thank you, Min. Cote, final thoughts? I just uh, reiterate what Minnow said earlier. I think the, the beauty of Dom Day is the fact that all these friendships that we've made and become so close with, it would have never happened without that tournament taking place 43 years ago. It would have never happened. And uh, it's a blessing. And uh, we've made great friends and uh, been able to uh, contribute to some causes and um, blessed to be part of it. Donnie, final thoughts. Yeah, I, I think what I, what I was thinking here as we were going through is that I think what's I, and I guess I hope what comes out of these podcasts is that there's going to be a large percentage of our listeners that have heard bits and pieces of some of these stories, I think, and, and maybe don't, maybe didn't get the full, uh, the full blow, you know? And uh, so I think they'll understand a lot of things a lot more, even, even further in depth and, uh, and then understand, I think out of that, understand how we got to like where we are. Like just basically this 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 spirit and this this camaraderie and this chemistry I refer, refer to it as great chemistry just kept building and building right and so in all these stories you can see a little bit of Dom Day in each of these stories even though some of them don't even relate relate to Dom Day you can see it's the same thing it's the same thing and then the same spirit happens at the field every year and then translates into the 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 you know the track at Remos at, you know at the party whatever so I think everybody uh. You know, it's good to get all this stuff on tape and and have uh, that, as you say, the second generation. I think will understand a lot of things in a lot deeper, uh, deeper fashion. So, babe, final thoughts? Yeah, much like you know, Donnie and Cote and Min have said, it's you know, it's the legacy of you know Dom Day. It's the friendships you have, you know. And I think of Min and I. You know, we met in grade nine in high school at TCI. You know, I look at Donnie, I've known him, I don't know, probably, you know, since I was probably six or seven. And Cote, you know, our moms went to nursing school together. 
So, you know, you think of the, the history of, you know, the friendships that you have and, and all these little trips and whether you're on those trips or not, you can't help but laugh and, and think of them. And you almost like when I heard the Pittsburgh trip, it was almost like I was there. <laughs> but I wasn't, you know, because I've heard it so many times and, and you've seen the act so many times. And one of the ones the thing that really shocked me was Woody not being able to go the next day and be up and ready because, you know, Woodsy is one of the, the one of the best at, you know, taking it to the limit, you know, drinking and having fun and being up the next day to, you know, to rise up with the sun. So, yeah, just the memories of it and the history and to think of all the things that we've done and all the things that we're going to do too. That's awesome guys. And just some final thoughts from me um, would obviously just be a thank you, obviously to Minnow for joining us. Um, but for those of you who don't know the involvement that Minnow continues to have within the Dom Day tournament, um, not only, you know, was he instrumental in carrying it as far as um, he did, but he is always one of the first calls that we do have whenever we run into any issues. And I would say, Thank you uh, to Minnow for not only what he's done in the past, but the continued guidance that he gives to us as, as a young group. Babe, I know you want to jump in. Yeah. I just want to say one thing. Bonjour. It's Steve Monroe. <laughs> awesome, guys. Thank you, man. Thanks, everybody. And as Thanks. always, guys, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. See you next time. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. Way to go, Thanks, man. man. Thanks, boys. Oh.